most of these behaviors were not because people were lacked training. And even though they may see all the TED Talks and read all the great books and, you know, get the coaches and trainers in, when they left 90 days later, CEOs are complaining, everybody's reverting back to the dark side, you know, to these behaviors, what is going on? We found out it was because um, we're thinking that if we keep throwing books and training at this, it's going to fix everything. Welcome to CEO on the Go, the show about personal and professional growth for busy leaders like you. I'm Gail Lance, and I'm here to help you think differently, solve big problems, and inspire change. It's tough to do on your own and even with a team, but it is possible. So let's get started. Welcome back to CEO on the go. And this special episode, that means I have a guest, you know that, right? Whether you're new to your senior executive role, or you've been at it for a long time, I think you're going to find value in today's episode. And if you have been in management for a long time, you've probably read a lot of leadership books and attended workshops, and you've been through training programs, and you've studied management theories. But what you're likely finding is that a lot of what you've learned doesn't really work. So I'm pleased to share an expert with you today who will debunk some management theory myths and help you understand what's really happening so you can think differently and do differently to achieve the results you want in your organization. Don Schmika is the author of the best-selling book, The Code of the Executive. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. He's an award-winning speaker, researcher, and founder of the Saga Leadership Institute. Don has interesting background. He writes and talks about leadership based on ancient samurai principles. And I'd not met Don before, so I was curious to learn more about his work. His latest course is How to Slay Dragons. It talks about the most horrifying problems that are stopping us from truly achieving success and happiness. I encourage you to think about how you've come to believe what you do about management or leadership and open yourself to new ideas, or as Don would argue, ancient ideas that can serve you well today. Enjoy my conversation with Don Schmenka. Don, welcome to CEO on the go. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I was just looking at your background, and as I mentioned to you before we recorded, there's so many different areas that we could cover. It's tough to try to to zoom in on just one that might be most relevant. So we'll see where the conversation goes today, but I'm thrilled to have you on so that we can talk more specifically about debunking management myths or management theory myths. I know that you have a lot to say on that. So I just wanted to jump in and start with that question about what you see being some of the most common management myths, and then um, we can and from there, talk about some of the common challenges or where you see CEOs specifically struggling with regard to that. Sure. I mean, that's actually a kind of good, good set of questions because they're, they're very intertwined. The, the CEO struggle, I, I kind of got pulled into this accidentally. If I could just give you a little bit of background because a lot of- Sure, feel free. I'll bring up maybe a little controversial, <laughs> but I was a planetary physicist at MIT and I was, that's where, what I was studying. And um but uh, as a sideline, I was automating the Harvard MIT biomedical lab. And that got me in touch with measuring humans and, <laughs> and looking at our species from a, from a uh, biological level. I started, so I started getting interested in humans, and it became my favorite species, actually, 
In fact, um, some I have some friends who are humans. That's what you know, Hopkins. And I did my uh, graduate work there. I ended up teaching there, and I got attached to the um, the executive education program because I was interested in how people lead in group together. And um, when I was looking at these behaviors, a lot of executives that were in this program are complaining about the high failure rates of management theory. And uh, they asked me to look at that from a biological level. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm a scientist. I'm a geek. I love discovering new things. And so I took that on and it started a journey, which has lasted now 20, 30 years. And um, when I began, that's where I got into the myth issue, because I started looking at why are things not working? And I said, well, give me some insights. So we started looking at, um, at failed companies because there were a lot of successful companies, but when they got mentioned in a great company book, they ended up going bankrupt. <laughs> so it's curious as to why all these great company lists in these best-selling books ended up failing. So we did a lot of autopsy research and we found out that what was missing wasn't really, they weren't using the right tools. Because when I, like when I do my CEO speeches, it's interesting, there's a point there where I have to show the slide. And I apologize, this is going to destroy probably what you think about management theory, but the number of books published every year in business and management is over 35,000. And they would be like, what? Yeah, you can look this up. This is, uh, you publish more than cancer research. But at least making progress in cancer research, you're dealing with issues that have been not only shared throughout the world, because I've done 2,000 speeches to CEO groups. And I always ask, like, what are your main issues? And they come up with the same things. But I then show them this ancient text that I uh, that I reconstructed. It was written about 500 years ago, but it was capturing a 700-year-old program for training managers in samurai tradition. So Oxford University gave me permission uh, to copyright this. And I wrote the code of the executive back in the 90s. What was interesting is the chapters and what they were focused on were similar to the issues we're focused on. So I began to see a pattern here. We have a lot of shared issues. 35,000 books a year aren't fixing them. And yet these issues are ancient. And that's what really started me on this uh, development. And so by, but I had to test it, right? I'm a scientist. So we started putting these models in place and companies started growing faster. And I wasn't sure why. But, you know, I, it was CEOs of come up and say, geez, we've had 100 consultants in here. The first one that's doubled the size of our company in two years. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just a geek. I have no idea what I just did. Uh, but as I began to see what's happening is um, some of the myths that we have are around uh, how we're supposed to lead humans. And I began exposing those myths and replacing them with neurological, genetic, and ancient techniques. Could you share an example of one? Yeah, like I, um, like for instance, when I start, I ask companies, I've done this now, I've trained maybe 30,000 executives, like how much time is wasted in, uh, in politics and dysfunction and, and uh, you know, blaming and finger pointing, you know, it's all that stuff that we see as dysfunctional behavior. And generally, I get an average of 50%. In other words, most companies may be wasting half of their human capital on functional behavior. So then I went to see, like, what does this mean strategically? And, and what it really means is loss of execution speed. So, so I began to look at leadership, not from like, oh, you need to have these 
characteristics or these qualities or these behaviors. It was really around the purpose of leadership being to execute quickly. In other words, produce results quickly. And this was eroding that speed by a major amount. But it wasn't like they were trying to uh, ignore it. I mean, they were throwing, I mean, in the, in the US, what were you going to spend $300 billion in all these new management theories? Wasn't working. And these, these issues are timeless. They've been around for, like I said, centuries. We began to see that uh, most of these behaviors were not because people were lacked training. And even though they may see all the TED Talks and read all the great books and you know get the coaches and trainers in, when they left 90 days later, CEOs are complaining, everybody's reverting back to the dark side, you know, to these behaviors, what is going on? We found out it was because um, we're thinking that if we keep throwing books and training at this, it's going to fix everything. Yeah, I see that so often too. I'm so glad you mentioned that one. It seems to be almost a knee-jerk reaction sometimes. Let's get let's get an expert in or a trainer, or somebody who can fix this or teach us what we need to know. And um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're bringing that one up. I see it all the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, uh, it's interesting because it's what, what you're describing is typically what what happens but nobody's mentioning the failure rates which is interesting it's like have they told you when they brought this in that you're going to have a nine percent failure rate they said no mention that i said well it's, it's in the scholarly research if you want to read it. so but we wanted to find out why and uh, we found out that a lot of it's fear-based and in, in other words these dysfunctional behaviors that stop execution speed are fear-based behaviors you know, I got to look good to the boss. I have to look good to my peers. I have to avoid accountability because it puts me at risk. I have to blame someone else. I have to, you know, play politics. To It's all about fear. And so we realized that until you remove that, it doesn't matter how many TED Talks and coaches and trainers you bring in. They're going to have this dark side, this, this fear coming in. So we went back to look at, um, you know, what may be surfacing this. And the samurai technique was really interesting because in their ancient training manual that I published in this book a long time ago called The Code of the Executive, uh, they said that it's coming from something we don't teach in our MBA programs, evil spirits. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> we don't teach evil spirits anymore. It was kind of funny. They said like the evil spirit infects the, the manager and it projects this world of fear. And so they got to do this dysfunctional behavior to, 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 to survive, right? It's a reaction they're having. Well, 700 years later, you know, Sigmund Freud is born and he says, well, it's called the ego. So he classifies it phenomena, which is helpful, but not so much because we have a label, but we don't know why and how to fix it. And we tell, well, leave your ego at the door or, you know, stop it, you know, stop being so egotistical. That doesn't work. I mean, has that ever happened, right? It's like, thank you. I didn't know that before. Ah, stop. My ego is now gone. No, it turned out that uh, we had to um, do more research on this. And this is where, I mean, I've been really privileged to hang around with some brilliant, brilliant people. But this is where the evolutionary geneticists and evolutionary psychologists was were helpful because they basically exposed the myth that, you know, it, it's actually there not because it's a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because it helps us commit genetic warfare, helps us to win in genetic warfare. And I thought, that's interesting. How, how come that's not published in 35,000 business books a year? But as it's published in their books and in their, in their papers. So the point is that selfishness helps an animal stay alive longer. And the theory they were telling me was that 
if you stay alive longer, you have more opportunity to commit genetic warfare, and that is replicating the data in your cell. So copying our DNA, copying our data is how we commit war, and the species that can replicate better than the rest win, and those that don't go extinct. So there's this replication battle, copying information. So I thought, great, so this ego thing is actually there for a reason, and it's purposeful, and guess what? It's not going to go away because we're going to tell somebody, leave your ego at the door. You know, ignoring biology, we're ignoring the science behind it. So um, what we started seeing is the best way to unhook the ego is to stop its reason for being there. And its reason for being there is to keep you alive. So what if you don't need to be kept alive? Like, what if you're already dead? Would that allow you to unhook your ego? And you know what? It did. Okay. Is this something leaders do? You help leaders come to this uh, awareness or thinking? Yeah, it's I it's it's I know it's crazy. I get involved with some really crazy projects. No, but. I'm just curious to how that happens. So um, I'm sure listeners want to know. <laughs> they'd they'd like to do some um, unhooking of the ego, <laughs> you know. So helping others do that probably it's usually the ones that have the large ego that don't know that they need that, right? So or I would think. <laughs> well, what it is is like I I, I tell people say, well, what do you do? I say, well, we teach executive teams how to die properly. It's like. That's not in any MBA program. That's not in any manual book, but it's like, no, it is. Actually, it's very ancient. Teaching them to die properly, when we look at it, it's a matter of, um, and by the way, this is ancient stuff. It's not something new. Uh, Civilizations have been using these techniques for years, but um, in, in the samurai, the first sentence in their training manual was that you need to keep in mind constantly, by day and by night, the fact that someday you must die. And that needs to be a constant thought. And what they found out is that when a samurai could remember that, that it unhooked their ego. And two things can occur that I think a lot of CEOs desperately want, but they don't know they want it yet. Do I say it? Bravery and honor in their people. Because if you have bravery and honor, uh, your execution speed goes up tremendously and your competitiveness in the market goes up incredibly high. So, it's interesting because people are like, how did you do that? You grew a company two to three times, 10, in some cases, 10 times their size within a few years. And it was really around these techniques because um, when you get speed and execution, you can always adapt quickly and you respond to changes and you can win and win and win. And that's really what the game is about. It seems like one of the keys is, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, it, you know, in terms of moving an organization forward is really helping the leader see themselves differently. It's not always about the tactics to you know, bring the team together. That can be part of it, but really kind of changing the way in which they see themselves. It's a good point. And I think, and, and I think it's, um, it's how they see the world. Yeah, their worldview, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen a lot of that academically, like, you know, okay, what's a paradigm shift? What's a worldview shift? What's this? Implementation beyond just the textbook reading of it is really, uh, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's, people are like, well, I want to change. I want to transfer my company. And I'm like, really? Are you, are you willing to endure the level of suffering and pain? It's like, what are you talking about? Can we just get a motivational speaker in? And it's not going to be me because I'm going to be a demotivational speaker. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I said anybody says they transformed and it was fun never transformed. Said so, old beliefs don't want to die. 
I wanted to touch on another area, and I'm cheating because I, I think I'd heard you on another po- podcast talking about strategic planning and kind of the way that it truly needs to be. And if I recall correctly, you were talking about the importance of using intuition in strategic planning. So I wanted you to touch on that too. To me, that's another myth that could be debunked. I don't know what the ones are that you talk about often, but you know the way that traditionally so many companies have gone about it has been so arduous and difficult and thought through in a way that I think uh, needs to change. So I was just curious to get your perspective. No, that's that. very, very good. Yeah. And that's, I, you're right. I haven't had several podcasts and in my speeches I normally bring this up with executive groups is that we have a myth that um, we have a strategy, but when we did the autopsies and we saw the high failure rate of strategic planning, we found that a lot of dead companies were clutching their strategic plan. But when we, again, we opened it up, it wasn't strategic, it was tactical. But one of the myths is that maybe your strategic plan isn't strategic, it's tactics. And we, f- we found that a lot of that was from uh, tool seduction as well. In other words, we want analysis to make us feel safe. We want to have control of the world. And the more we can analyze and understand the world, the more we're safe because we can have control of it and our tools help us do that. So strategic planning became a tool. And that was the downfall of strategic planning. Yeah, I see that. So it's not necessarily just an analytical process or an intellectual exercise. That's the problem. It's like that tools like and, and I'm I'm part of the problem. I I I did this wrong for many years. I was teaching in the graduate school at, at Johns Hopkins and uh I was using all the analytical models. And then I was like, geez, there's so many dead bodies with these analytical models. Maybe it's not there. But other companies are winning doing something else. So that was really what took us to a new level in our research because people were wondering like how does a small company start up and 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 all the consultants say they're not going to make it all this all the thought leaders say they're doing it wrong all the industry experts you know say to ignore them but this company rises up and then dominates their industry I mean it dominates it and I'm always like well why is no one asking this question like what did they do? When all the thought leaders and experts and consultants said they would never make it, they made it and won. So, of course, after they win, all the experts shut up and quit criticizing them. But what was happening is that was where the intuition came out. In other words, and it was it was fascinating because I, I wasn't the first one. I mean, I was reading some um, great work by Kanichi Amai on uh, the mind of the strategist. And it was really, it started coming out. And then I was reading... Um, from great generals and architects of, of, you know, how to win in war. And it was, it was all about intuition. It was all about shifting your beliefs beyond the enemies. In other words, uh, seeing the field differently than they see it. And that was what we don't teach in our business schools. And when we look at a lot of these strategic planning sessions, there's no elements in there for intuitional belief shifts. So still seeing their market the same way they saw it. There's no shift there. There's still their enemies with the comp same way, no shift there. Still looking at the data in the same way that they've always seen it, right? Whereas right. they might need to look at that differently too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any tip for uh, someone who's listening where it might sound soft or hard to do? Like, how do you tap into your own intuition? It seems like that would be hard to teach. So I'm curious if you have a suggestion for someone who's who's listening and that's resonating with them and they want to trust their intuition, but maybe they struggle with that a bit. It's interesting. This it, it all depends. I've had uh, I've had some CEOs say thank you for validating what I'm feeling. <laughs> In other words, my advisor has been telling me 
you know, I'm crazy or this or that. And, but I had this gut feel and I'm like, well, that's where it starts. You know, it's, it's maybe they're not seeing it the way you're seeing it. So they're, they're believing something different than you're believing. So, so don't ignore it, you know, don't ignore it no matter what they say. So I've had a lot of people say they were relieved in knowing that, especially entrepreneurs and innovative thinkers, you know, they'll see things, but then people will kind of shoot it down or like, oh, you're nuts. <laughs> thinking not so fast, not so fast. Now, the other part is sometimes it has to happen in a group and that's experiential. It's not something that can be taught like here's information. So learn this information. It's more of an experiential thing. It's almost Socratic. It's challenging ideas. It's going to uh, some firm idea and then presenting a shift in context where what they thought was true wasn't. And all of a sudden, truth changes because oh, I thought that was a true thing. No, it is not. It's this. It's that. It's hard to say how to do that. Like, I mean, I wish I had like some of these other, even the fill in the blanks program. Yeah, yeah. Oh, not expecting that. We just was going to get a take on it. Yeah. At ten fifteen, we're going to shift your belief. <laughs> Here's the magic formula. Yeah. yeah. I keep saying, stay in the world of art. In art, there is no structure. There's no agenda. There's no checklist. There's no formula, but we're going to craft this thing. And so it's in that Socratic dialogue that things begin shifting. I'm not quite sure when it's going to happen. Sometimes it's in the morning, afternoon. There have been times we've been around a bonfire outside reading Beowulf. You know, I mean, it's something to shift what's going on in their mind to see reality differently. You know, dragon you're fighting may not be dragon. It may be this. And so and when it opens up, then it offers them a new way of competing and winning. And that's how we see these companies totally do the opposite of what the industry says you should do and take the market. Mm, that takes courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's risk. It's fear. It's courage. It's all those things that we teach we shouldn't do. And I'm saying, oh, go for it. You know, that we should be doing. Yeah. Well, do you have a final tip, Don, or any other myth that you want to touch on that you think we've overlooked that would be important to share as we um, begin to sign off today? Oh, God, that's, I, I could. I love your questions. I could spend uh, two hours with I you. I know. That's what I said. I know we could talk a really long time, but we'll, we always trust we're going to get exactly what we need, where we need to go and what we need to cover for the time that we have. So, Well, I hear um, a lot of uh, complaints by CEOs around culture change because they brought it experts. And what we found is in the autopsies, the main failure rate is that um, most um, organizational change experts don't trigger biological grouping instincts for humans. And when you trigger those instincts, your culture changes. And that's what we should be changing. So when we go into salvage a failed change program, we're looking for things that trigger grouping behaviors. And they generally come down to, and every chief of every tribe knows this, as I do these expeditions, they're very clear on it all. What are the symbols in your company and which ones need to be destroyed? Or what are the rituals and which of those need to be destroyed? And what is the magic of your tribe? What are those apologies and magic moments that need to be shifted? So we take an entirely opposite view of culture change. We're looking at symbol, ritual, and magic shifts, as any chief will do in any tribe, because it triggers the grouping instincts of humans. So that's another myth that we dispelled. And it works. I mean, we've we've had a very high success rate in an industry that has a very, very high failure rate. So that's another idea to think about. Okay, great. 
Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing a few thoughts on this topic. I always love learning from others in the field and appreciate your sharing your insights. Is there a best way for people to reach out to you if they want more information or want to connect with you? Sure. We have a, a lot of stuff going on. I'm trying to use uh, sagaleadership.com. I, I stole it from the Vikings, S-A-G-A. <laughs> okay. Leadership.com. And uh, it's a good place to start. Great. All right. Well, again, thanks so much, Don, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. For everyone else listening in, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week doing the work that matters to you. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, be sure to share this episode with someone else who might benefit or leave a review. You can join my email list by going to workmatters.com so you don't miss an episode. And there you can learn more about ways we serve mission-driven leaders like you. If there's a challenge you want to discuss, I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, keep growing as a leader, inspiring change, and doing the work that matters to you.